And uh, uh, again, we're, um, we're, we're um, joining into the lives, some changed lives of some people as uh, Paul and Silas, also joined by, um, by Luke and Timothy, are moving through what we today now call Europe or the area of, uh, of, of Greece. Uh, we're starting at verse 16 today. Here now the reading of God's word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Excuse me. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set foot before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment just to pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts just as you opened Lydia's hearts, uh, her heart to, uh, to trust in you the last time. For those of us, of course, who are trusting in you, open our hearts afresh. Uh, they, they, they tend to dim, our hearts do, Lord, during the week. So open them now to receive you, all that you have to give us, so that on the Sabbath we would sup on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're going to look at two people today and to then a unity of people that the text brings. Uh, two people and then the unified people that the gospel creates when it's preached. So we're going to look at a a liberated slave, 
a, a jubilant jailer and then a unified people. A liberated slave, jubilant jailer, and unified people. Let's look at the liberated slave first. This chapter, Acts 16, is all about the power of Christ to save and deliver. That's what this, this entire chapter is about. It's a, it, it's a power that both extends and overwhelms. Power that extends past social and cultural lines, as we'll see, but also a power that overwhelms every kind of opposition. Now, two Sundays ago, you remember, we saw the power of the gospel convert Lydia, a, a, a woman that the Lord saved very quietly almost imperceptibly, uh, while she attended a Riverside Sabbath prayer meeting, the Lord very gently, the Lord very calmly opened her heart so that she could hear the gospel. Now today, you have the Lord working in a much more dramatic way. One is the Lord pulling a, a woman out of the grip of demonic power, and the other has a man being pulled back from the the verge of suicide, in a way that includes an earthquake. Now, some of us came to faith in a way like Lydia. Very calmly, very quietly, maybe even over a period of time. Others of us came to faith more like the servant girl or the the Philippian jailer today with a pow uh, in, in an instant. But here is the thing. Here is the thing. There is absolutely no difference when it comes to the inward working of the Spirit. No matter how you were saved, there's absolutely no difference when it comes to the inward working of the Spirit. One of the things that we're doing in, uh, in youth group this year is that church members are coming to our youth group meetings. The next one is, is, is next week. And, uh, and, and they're giving their testimonies to the youth of the church. So that not only do we get to know each other better, not get to know each stories, each other's stories better, but we can we can speak of the inward working of the Spirit in our hearts, common to all of us as Christians. But then look at the how the outward manifestation of it just fills the earth with God's glory. But the again, whether it's quiet and calmly or with a pow. Uh, the inner consistency is there. In every case, the power of the gospel takes a heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh, resulting in faith in Christ alone. In faith in Christ alone. Plus, plus of course, repentance from sin and ultimately the transformation of the person over time into the image of God. Now, there are some externals that do point to the inward power of the Spirit on the move. This slave girl, this slave girl, she is in bondage in more ways than one. She's in bondage in more ways than one. First, she's in bondage to the demonic forces that possess her. But second, she's in bondage to a group of men who financially possess her. She is, as we would say today, she's being trafficked for her unique skill. We're told that she has a a spirit of divination. Uh, And uh, this is the sort of thing that never goes out of fashion. If you just drive down Denal Road, you just drive it to the end toward Route 31 and you make a left, there's this sort of ramshackle house there. It's been there for, it's been there actually since I was in high school. 
because I, I, I grew up in this area. That house has always been there. And uh, it's, 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 it's kind of broken down. It's dark inside. The, the shades are always pulled. But there's always a couple of cars there. Desperate people. Um, uh, people who are gullible. Uh, we have this, by the way, we should say, we have this in Christian circles. Sadly, the, in a sense, the evangelical version of this. Pastor, can you tell me God's will for my life? Right? Where we want to know the future. People want to peer into uh, what theologians call God's decrees. Now, the Bible is clear about this. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things, hear me now, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. What are the words of the law? It's this. It's the whole book. It's the whole library. It's all 66 books. That's what we're talking about. And it's the things in the Bible. That's what's been revealed. You know, we don't do, let's confess it. That's why we have a confession of sin every week. We don't do all the things that are in this book, do we? But we're all very worried about the stuff that's not, that we think the Lord knows about. Would that we did do everything that was in this book and leave the rest to the Lord God. But we don't. But more than that, the Bible says that divination is demonic. Lee read for you earlier from Deuteronomy 18. To practice divination, to tell fortunes, to interpret omens, or to be a sorcerer or someone who calls up the dead is to sin, the Bible says, against God. Because... Because, not without reason, not just because God is a jealous God, though that's, that's, there's, a, there's a godly jealousy. He thinks he is the only way that you can be saved and he doesn't want you distracted by other things. But that's, that's connected to this next point. You, when you do this, when you talk about such things, when you give time to such things, you're making people vulnerable to deception. That's what the Lord thinks. You're making people vulnerable to deception that can take them away from the truth of God's revealed revelation to them that he wants them to have, that he wants them to have in their hands and to, to live their life by. So friends, when, when anyone looks to any other source other than God's revealed world word for absolute wisdom and understanding, they become completely open to deception. But here's the interesting thing. Is she deceiving anybody? Is the slave girl deceiving anybody? Here's what she says as she follows Paul and Silas around town. We, it looks like, uh, for the moment, by the way, it looks like Timothy and Luke have gone off to a different section of town. But she's been following Paul and Silas. And she says about them, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And according to the text, she repeats this, and she repeats it over and over again, and she does this, if you notice, day after day after day. I mean, if this is demon possession, this looks like the good kind, <laughs> right? Um, they, they, they are, Paul and Silas, they are servants of God. They most certainly are. And indeed, they are proclaiming the way of salvation. How cool is that, that these evangelists come to town, <clears throat> have a local resident who just shows up, who's willing to shout to anyone who will listen, listen to these guys. 
And, and you know, screaming, actually screaming and yelling, that's, that's the, the, one of the ways that diviners made themselves known. They, would sh- they were known to shriek. Uh, she usually got paid to do this. And here she's just offering to do it for Paul and Silas for free. How great is that? But that then begs the question, why does an evil spirit, we're, we're taking the, the, the text seriously, this, that she is possessed by a demon. Why does an evil spirit say things about the apostles and the gospels that are true? Why would a demon do that? Well, the truth is, almost everything she or the demons are saying is a half-truth. Is a half-truth. And a half-truth is almost more dangerous than a lie. These men are servants. But you see, what you think of as a Christian as the Most High God is not what people in Philippi would have thought of as the Most High God. This is a part of the Greco-Roman world. And of course, they had a pantheon of gods. So there were many gods. So the Most High God is Zeus. So she's saying... These are messengers of the Most High God, and she knows that everyone's listening to her, is not thinking about the God of the Old Testament. They're thinking about Zeus. Also, in the Greek, there's actually no definite article before the phrase way of salvation. The English has to almost put it in there because you'd think it was an error without. But it really is more like she's really proclaiming a way of salvation. Or they're proclaiming the salvation way. And uh, in this culture, salvation was often often thought of as well-being or bodily health or uh, kind of deliverance from sickness or, 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 or for preservation. So the point is her message is filled with half-truths. And this is important. We sometimes think that the chief weapon of Satan is persecution. And next month we're... Uh, we're gonna with with the church uh, universal. We're gonna we're gonna focus in our prayer on the persecuted church. But the chief thing to fear from Satan is not persecution. It's not. The chief thing to fear from Satan is not physical harm. Satan's chief weapon is deception. Is deception. He is specifically the father of lies. I want you to think about the trials that you go through. It could be physical pain. It could be a physical condition. It could be financial problems. It could, it could be, your, 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 you know, uh, uh, part of your body is not working the way it did last week. And you've got pain or you're in chronic pain or you're, you're, you're suffering, you're struggling. You can't pay the bills, whatever it might be. One of the, one of the ways that Satan uses those trials is not just to give you pain and make you feel bad, but so that for the purpose of that you will start to believe a lie. This pain, this condition, this trial, you can't trust God. I mean, it's the, it's, it's, it's the way Satan works in the book of Job. The Satan, Satan doesn't want to kill Job. He wants Job to suffer enough so that Job believes that God doesn't love him for him to believe a lie. That's what Satan does. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. And he wants to bind you up, you see, into ultimately unbelief. A lie may start with, I must have done something wrong if God would bring this into my life. And after a while, that turns into, God must not love me at all. 
And after a while, that might turn into, I, I got to get out from under this. God does not exist at all. And that's when Satan's happy. But the goal is the lie, not the suffering. So let me ask you then, has pain, persecution, and depression been used in your life to make you believe something about yourself or about God that simply is not true? It simply is not true. And friends, this is, by the way, this is why we need each other. This is why the... um, the, the, the students need an adopt-a-student family. This is why the adopt-a-student families need the students. This is why the youth in the church need the elderly, and the elderly in the church need the youth, and why families need singles, and singles need married couples, and, and, and why we need each other in our small groups, because all of us have moments where we are believing the lie. And we need somebody to come in and break in through that, the web of often multiple little lies that are adding up to, I can't trust this God. And to break in and to see past that, to see past those situations. Because all of us have moments where we believe in stress, anxiety, pain, that, 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 that something's wrong here, and, and you need someone around when you cry out, help me in my unbelief. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Do you have somebody like that? Somebody that can remind you of truth in a fallen world that we are all loved, but as sinners, only in Christ. We are loved, beloved, in the beloved. Somebody to break through the trials that you're going to have in a fallen world to tell you that truth. Now, I want to move on to the jailer, but a word of application and warning here. The church today, the church today likes to take on and address all the forms of oppression that people undergo. And, uh, you know, for this girl, I mean, we, it's obvious we could sit down, we could have a little, we, we could stop the sermon, get in a little group, and I could put you all in groups and, 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 and say to you all, what do you, what, what do you think this girl's needs are? And, and we could easily list them. We would probably come up with a similar list that we could put up on a board that we could all see. She could use some counseling. Uh, maybe a psychological assessment, some, some of us might suggest. Um, we, somebody, somebody, to call the cops. She's being trafficked. Uh, she's being possessed. She's flat out being enslaved. Somebody to do that, right? We could come up with a, a list of all the things that we can and we should do for her. Things that we as Christians must do for others who are in that situation because we are called to do justice, without a doubt. But it's interesting. It's interesting. Remember, She's been following Paul and Silas around for a week or so at least. Paul and Silas, part of their job is to know the town of Philippi. And uh, pre- presumably they've gone past the, the, you know, the, the, the local treatment centers, the, the people in the, the first century versions of, of doctors and people that could perhaps help out. And they're, they're, now they're, they're, they're starting, uh, they're, they're praying for converts as well. Maybe other people that could help this person. And, uh, and here she is, she's shrieking after them. That's her, her calling card. Uh, they actually, uh, interestingly enough, called people like this, diviners like this, ventriloquists. Ventriloquists, because they were able to 
utter sounds from sort of their belly. And so when they shrieked, it sounded like they almost had someone inside of them, as if it was another voice, you see. And uh, so Paul knows, this is a standard, the word in the Greek is a standard word for somebody who does this. He knows her condition, in other words. He understands what her suffering is. Now, Paul could have stopped and addressed any one of these issues. Again, she's a victim of, of, of social injustice as well as demonic depression, and that's evil. And like all injustice, we as Christians, we must push back. But I want you to notice what Paul does. He goes right after her masters. He goes right after her masters. He goes right after the powers and the principalities is the way Paul would put it. He attacks the master. Paul goes right to the top. He doesn't take her out to the woodshed and and, and become accusatory because that's what happens when many of us are, are oppressed, by the way. We become oppressors. He, you know, she's got some responsibility for leading people into lies, even as she's been led into a lie. He doesn't do that. He doesn't suggest whatever therapies of the day are, whatever the first century counseling is on offer, first century medicinals. He goes right at her spiritual and her economic masters, and he preaches right at them, and don't miss what he says. Do not miss what he says. He preaches to them, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. He does the work of the church that only the church can do. Only the church is going to preach in the name of Jesus. Now the church, I, I fear, is taking on so many of the, of the roles of doing so many good things. I've been involved in some, some uh, meetings on this. That, that, that we, we are, we, and, and, and all the things that we're talking about, they are all really good things. Every single one of them is a good thing. Many of these things fill the command to love our neighbor. We can and should do them. People love us when we do these things for our neighbors. We love doing them because they not only feel missional to us, but, but they, make us, make, they make us feel relevant. And everyone wants to be relevant. I want to be relevant. But friends, often the more relevant we become, the less prophetic we are. We have to be both. We have to be both. Often the more relevant that we want to become, the less prophetic we end up being. The more we relate to the world and the more we speak in its terms, something that we have to do. We have to do that to be loving to our neighbor. But sometimes the more we do that, the less time we have to focus on the mission. And the mission, Paul says, is to go right to the top and preach to the masters the things that control us, you see. That Christ is Lord. That Jesus is their master. You see, the two problems are, one, when everything is missions, often nothing is missions. And number two, related to that, when everything is missions, we almost never do the one thing that both the world will hate us for, but is simultaneously the only hope of the world, and that is to preach Christ and him crucified. And that's what Paul does to this girl's masters, something that only the church can do and will do, preach in the name of Jesus, preach Christ and him crucified, and guess what? People will hate you for that. They will. The demons hate him for that. 
And this girl's economic masters, they hate him for that. But you see, what, what, what saves this girl is not politics or policy or better policing. It's the gospel that saves her. That's what releases her from bondage, both from her economic masters and spiritually. She is free. She is free. Have you noticed how much the world hates the name of Jesus? Try to pray in his name in the public square. Try to introduce his name in a conversation maybe on, uh, uh, on ethics or economics. Try this just in one spot. Do the, I, use your best judgment. Try this once maybe on the internet and then run from your keyboard. <laughs> right? right? Um, some of you know I was to, uh, uh, to do a wedding last week, but toward the end of the week before the wedding, I was uh, relieved of my duties, uh, you might say, because I couldn't not preach from the word about Jesus. And those are my family members. <laughs> but this is where the church, your church must focus, you see. We, we need to do justice in this world and speak out and in our neighborhoods and we need to run for office and we need to seek after mercy and, and, and do justice. Every one of us has a responsibility to love our neighbors, but the church's job, as Paul saw it, was not to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the principalities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And brothers and sisters, the text says they are there. You may feel less relevant when you do this. But the Bible says those forces are there. And, and he did it by preaching and here commanding. Did you notice? He's commanding in the name of Jesus and without distraction. So let me just sort of wrap this point up and put it another way. Every time we go for a fix at Jesus, we lose our focus on a faith in Jesus. Every time we go for a fix at Jesus, and you know, I want Jesus to fix all my problems too. But the more I, 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 I reduce Jesus down to my fix at Jesus, I start to lose focus on my faith in Jesus. C.S. Lewis put this all this way, better than I ever would. The Christian who did most, Lewis says, for the present world were precisely those people who thought most of the next world. It is since Christians have begun to think less of the other world, where the kingdom come is going to the new heavens and new earth, that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And you get neither. This slave girl is liberated because Paul kept his eye on the gospel and the real powers of oppression that are behind every other kind of oppression in this world. He could have relieved her suffering earlier in the week, presumably. But ultimately, his attack was against the, the, the liar and the father of lies behind all of those attacks. And that's what we must do.
Let's move on to the jailer. Indeed, this girl got the world thrown in. She was delivered from the demonic, but her human masters, they realized that that they are now never going to make another dime off this girl. That's it. They've lost her, which is the point. The effects of the gospel, when it's believed more and more, uh, those effects always, by the way, uh, affect uh, vice in a community. It's why church planning, by the way, is as important as it is. The gospel comes into a place and it starts to knock over the gravy train that's happening in that area. Uh, I I, I lived in New York City for 15 years and uh, at at one point, you know, uh, to go toward uh, Hell's Kitchen or to see a Broadway show, go down 42nd Street, it was a pit of hell. (laughs) And uh, suddenly... Uh, a bunch of people started planting churches there. And uh, it really angered some of the store owners, um, of the, the, you know, the, 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 the peep shows and all of that stuff. And they actually moved out of the area. It destroyed it. Now, there are other things going on there now, but, but, um, but uh, you, you see what I mean? When the gospel's on the move, all of those, those vice business start to fall away. So these masters are not very happy about this, and they seize and they, they grab Paul and Silas. They don't gently usher them to jail. They, they drag them through the dirty streets. And then when they get Paul and Silas in front of the magistrates, they lie about it. Did you see that? They don't say, hey, Mr. Judge, uh, these guys spoke in the name of Jesus, and these demonic spirits left this girl who we had enslaved and who we were trafficking for profit. And you know what? It's really hit us hard in our pocketbooks. Because that's the truth. Now, what they do is, number one, they play the race card. These are Jews. They play the, the, the foreigner card. They, they play the outsider religion card, verse 20. Right? They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us. They don't accept our practices. They're different from us. They're Jews. And this has the effect of riling up their base, if you will. And pretty soon, mob rule takes over. And in verse 22, Paul and Silas, read between the lines here, Paul and Silas are stripped naked and they're beaten with rods. And then they're taken to prison. And they're put in stocks. And by the way, these stocks are not like the... Uh, what my, my parents used to take me up to New England when I was a kid to all those like sort of faux Puritan towns, right? And they all had the stocks in the center of town. And as kids, we loved to sort of sit in them and get... I've got pictures of me and locked up. Uh, my parents want, must have wanted to lock me up. Because whenever we got to one of these places, I had to sit in the stocks with my feet hanging through like this, right? These stocks are not like that, Okay. What these stocks are is, is, is prisoners sitting on a dirt floor facing a wall and you put your, your feet through holes that are as wide as you can possibly spread your legs. And then they're bound and locked into holes in a wall with your ankles so that your, your leg, your muscles start to tighten and, and, your, and, and, and your, your, your hips are just sort of pulling apart in this sort of steady pulling. And, and all you want to do to relieve this is just twist and bend and pull out and pull your legs together. And of course, you're naked and you've, they've been beaten, so they're also bleeding. And that's where they are. And notice they're in darkness too. 
Later, when the earthquake comes, somebody's going to have to bring a light into the room. So these men are just sort of crying. They're wailing, you see. It was torture. And of course, Jesus said this would happen. He said that if they persecuted me, they will, that is a word of assurance, by the way, they will persecute you. That they will, um, that we will have to deny ourselves and we're going to have to pick up our crosses as Christians and follow him. And therefore, this passage is one, by the way, that you will never hear preached by a health and wealth gospel preacher. Because look, this suffering brings out the best in Paul and Silas. They begin to pray. They begin to sing hymns. And notice, they're not complaining. They're not second-guessing God's providence to bring them to Philippi. They, uh, they're not finger-pointing at each other, right? Uh, they're not saying, as I probably would have said, Paul, this is another fine mess you've gotten us into. (laughs) They're not grumbling against the wicked liars who got them into this position in the first place. They're not swearing at the girl who was swearing at them. They're not demanding more humane treatment. They're not demanding to speak to their lawyers. They're not even sleeping. No, they sing and they pray. And by singing and praying, they are testifying. They're witnessing to their fellow prisoners. I'd like you to think about worship like that on a Sunday. We come to worship on Sunday as fellow prisoners, in a sense, of the old man, of our flesh, of our remaining sin. And we're testifying to each other that this is not the end of the story. That we get released from this. And our release is already sure. That is something that should make us sing out and praise God. Brothers and sisters, I'm making the point of this because for the most of us, our circumstances have far too much control over us. Our circumstances have far too much control over us because the Christian, by definition, always has something to take joy in. Always, always, no matter what your situation despite every circumstance that you can think of, you are not without causes for joy. And they are completely independent of your external trials. I know you, get, you, you go home today or you, know, you, you open up your mailbox and there will be a bill there that is bigger than you can, can pay. And I want you to think, this is hard, but I've got other reasons to praise God today. That doesn't mean that someone's going to magically run in and like, pay your bill for you. But it does mean that that bill is not the reality of who you are. That bill has a way of saying, this is you, debtor. And you need something that that comes into your life, a truth that comes into your life and says, no, paid in full. Do you have that voice in your life? This is what James means when he says to count it all joy in every kind of trial. Peter and Silas are naked, bruised, and bleeding. Uh, Excuse me, Paul and Silas are naked, bruised, and bleeding in a Philippian dungeon, but they have more cause for joy than people in Philippi out that night having a very nice dinner because they have Jesus. Uh, A preacher I I, I enjoy, Carl Robbins, um, he, he likes to say that in every trial, our first question is always why. Why me, why now, and why this? 
always trying to get under and behind, again, God's decrees and the wisdom of God for allowing these things to happen to me and in my life. And I, I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, I do this. I'm a why person. Why this? Why now? Why me? But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to change this. I'm trying to walk toward these trials because for God's people, these trials are not meant to be used by the evil one to tell me a lie that God doesn't, doesn't love me. But they're a trial to, in some sense, test me and grow me. I'm trying to have these sort of, through gritted teeth, I, I admit, why not me? <laughs> right? I, it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I don't, you, you shouldn't be a masochist. Gee, I'm really glad I fell down the steps today. Thank you, God. You know, that's, you know, that's a, people look at Calvinists that way. <laughs> right? <clears throat> But but uh, but no no, why not me? And Lord, what would you have for me? Because I know that your promises to me are sure. I know your promise to love me, to never forsake me, that you'll never let me go. That's all for me. So now, why this? And why now? to count it all joy, to know that he has a plan for you. For this jailer, look at how his trial becomes his joy. Don't miss that. When God brings the earthquake that pops open the prison doors and gives the prisoners their freedom, this jailer is not merely driven to despair, he's driven to suicide. If you're a Roman jailer, you have to be prepared to literally fall on your sword. It was honorable to fall on your sword because it was disgraceful to allow a prisoner to escape. This is what you had to be ready to do. And, but, but, and Paul knows this. He, he doesn't even see what's happening. It's like Paul knows, oh boy, my bonds are off. Silas's bonds are off. I don't know where the jailer is because it's in, they're in the dark. But Paul knows what's going to happen. And he yells out, don't do it. I know what you're going to do. You're going to judge yourself for this. But we're here. God has brought us here to talk about the one who's going to take your judgment. Paul, in an instance, getting ready. What's Paul, Paul's, Paul's suffering, but he's singing hymns. He's singing hymns about the gospel. He's praying about the gospel. He's, oh, here's an opportunity to preach the gospel. Don't kill yourself. Don't judge yourself. See? And look at all the powerful verbs there. Uh, he rushed in, the jailer. With the, with the light, and he falls down at Paul and Silas's feet. By grace, he's been saved, you see, from the sword. And then, and then realizing how close he came to death, he asks, what must I do to be saved? Now, isn't that interesting? He's just been saved. He was about to fall on his sword. And Paul says, we're here. We didn't leave. You didn't lose a single prisoner yet. No reason to do that. But then he asks, what must I do to be saved? He's been hearing the hymns. He's been hearing the prayers. He knows they're in jail because these guys worship the most high God and it's not Zeus. So who's your God that saved a wretch like me? That's what's going on there. That's what's going on. This, brothers and sisters, is the question of the ages. 
What must I do to be saved? If, if your eyes are open to how bad your situation is, this is the question of the ages. What must I do to be saved? And Paul gives him a word that is filled with certainty. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Do you believe that? Because that's the answer to the question of the ages. And the certainty is about this. Transfer all your hopes, transfer the source of your meaning, transfer all the needs that you have for identity and understanding in this world to Jesus. The way the Bible puts this is, fix your eyes on Jesus and you will be saved. Because that's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. You're saying Jesus is my Lord. He is the only object of your faith, the only one that cast away your sin, and the only one that can give you his perfect righteousness. That's who he is. Have you said that? Jesus, you're my Lord. Last very short point. A unified people. Uh, this weekend, I was involved as a chair for a, 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 a conference, a local gospel coalition conference. Great teaching, good times, good fellowship. One of the speakers brought up this very passage in reference to God's justice and mercy. And, and everything that he said was, is, is true. In the text, and especially if we were to go back to two weeks ago, remember when we were talking about Lydia, um, uh, you, you, had a, you had a woman, Lydia, from Asia Minor. She's saved. Here you have a poor slave girl here in Philippi. By the way, church tradition says that, that uh, the slave girl came to faith and she's one of the pillars of the church ultimately in Philippi. And, and this Gentile Roman jailer, remember Philippi is this uh, sort of a retirement village for Roman soldiers that's been set up. And, uh, and, and what, a, what a diverse crowd, you see. Um, you know, the famous prayer, it's not in the Bible, but it's in, in uh, the old uh, rabbinic hymn books, uh, prayer books, excuse me. It's called the Siddur. And if you go to uh, uh, rabbinic seminaries even today, this is the prayer that you sometimes hear. Blessed are you, O God, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. It's not in the Bible. Right? Still said. And it's an indicator of, of, of how difficult life could be as a slave, as a Gentile, as a woman. But here God comes with the gospel to a place, and what, what, what does God do? He saves a slave, slaves a woman, saves a Gentile. Boom. Okay. Overwhelming. All the cultural lines. That's what the gospel does. Blasts over those. But you see, that's only the beginning of the unity that's to be found in the gospel. That's just the beginning as a starting point. One of the things that the gospel does is that it pulls you out of present-day idolatries. Present-day idolatries. Think about some of our social idolatries today. We are obsessed, historically, unfortunately, but we are obsessed with the color of people's skins in this country. We are obsessed with economic equality. We are obsessed uh, in this area, Princeton area, with educational outcomes. 
Now, a lot of these things are good things, right? Um, they're, they're wonderful things, the, uh, you know, economic prosperity and uh, 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 school choices that we have and things like this. But they are also things that can be used to sinfully divide. The colors, by the way, brothers and sisters, that we come in, they're all good. God made them. They're all good. And so uh, uh, the shape of our bodies and the, even mine, uh, the, 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 our, our, the shape of our lips, the shape of our noses, our, our eye color, these are all good. God made us that way. But why are those things, for instance, more important than the size of my feet? You know, why, why aren't we fetists? I, I don't know why. You know, I don't, my feet are no less obvious than my skin color, I don't think. You know. But, but, but why, why, color of hair, why isn't that the deal, right? The color of your eyes. We are so race conscious in a way that the early church simply was not. And once you start valuing people aesthetically, based on color, so that the only way to confirm whether your church meets the standard of evangelism is to categorize people in terms of their ethnic or racial attributes so that they exactly process the makeup of the community around you. I mean, biblically, that is just weird. Biblically, that's weird. Paul preaches, and he preaches Christ and him crucified, and whoever comes, that's (laughs) great. Now, the question is, are we making access to all those groups? Do you have a church that can accommodate people with big feet? And, and, all the, and all the colors that we come in. And, and, you know, and, you know, some of our food stinks more than others. I know that that's a problem between uh, some of our groups and uh, so forth. And <clears throat> I've heard about that. Uh, sometimes some of that food's in my own house. <clears throat> Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but, but we're obsessed with these things. Have we not seen that the gospel just overwhelms this stuff? Because when we get obsessed with it, we're working with the devil's playbook. I've not met a single pastor ever, and you'd have an impossible time finding one in New Jersey that would not want a more, more diverse congregation in all ways, except maybe theologically. And yes, if everyone in our congregation looks exactly like you or the people in, in your neighborhood, you might have a problem. And we are to walk across the street in good Samaritan fashion and welcoming people different from us. Shame on us if we don't do that. But to make color hues an express goal would match the, again, to match the community that surrounds us is, 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 is to be obsessed with something that the Bible is not and to miss the things that the Bible is obsessed with. Does your neighbor believe in Jesus? That's the issue. I don't care what color they come in. I don't care how big their feet are. I don't care how much hair they have on their head or don't or, 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 or any of those things. Do they believe in Jesus? That's the issue. Do they have that gift? Do they have that, you see? Because we're supposed to be, I mean, beyond skinny, we're supposed to be welcoming enemies in. We're supposed to be welcoming the poor in. We need freedom from these idols. Where do you see freedom here in the passage? This is what we're going to end with. It's right there. By the end of the story, did you notice that everyone who at first in the story, appeared to be free. The slave girl's owners were free. Next week, we'll see that the judges and the magistrates were free. Okay, And the jailer was free. 
they all become slaves. They all become slaves to Jesus. And everyone who first appeared to be spiritually enslaved, the poor slave girl and Paul and Silas, they're now free. The point is this. What is the state of your heart? What is the state of your heart before a holy God? Are you caught up? Are you in bondage to to, to the stuff that's coming out of your heart and the stuff that's coming into your heart? Have you believed lies about yourself? Have you had more fear of man in your life than you've had fear of God, a God who ultimately says, fear only me because I'm the only one that actually can tell you that you are loved. Are you loving other things and those things haven't loved you back and you're in the death spiral? Be free. Be free indeed. And trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.